Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is the hydrogen economy's value chain in, avi- in aviation. And our guest is Paul Aramenko, CEO and co-founder of Universal Hydrogen. In this conversation, they talk, we talk about driving forces, R&D, risks, trade-offs, uncertainties, but also the scalability and the impact on climate change of this transition. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about this show, which we always appreciate, go to the episode categories, and you'll find them at futurized.org episodes, with collections of episodes organized by topic. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, you can go to futurized.org store. But before anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Paul, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me, Tron. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I, I want to talk about some really important things uh, having to do with the future of aviation, which is something I think many of us uh, get to enjoy and which has been pretty fundamental to the mobility of humankind. And uh, Paul, I wanted to uh, just introduce you briefly. So you, you were born in Tviv in, in Western Ukraine, came to the U.S. at 11, uh, became an aeronautical uh engineer and have degrees from MIT, which I'd love to talk about, and Caltech. And uh, after that, you've done a stint of pretty interesting, uh, you know, work uh, relationships here with DARPA, Google, Airbus, UTC, and now as the CEO and co-founder of Universal Hydrogen, which is a zero emission aviation infrastructure company, as I understand it. You're also a, a trained pilot, so I guess that's kind of handy in the, you know in talking to a lot of people in in, in the aviation industry. And um, I read in your background that you want to build a starship, but then I read a little closer, and it turns out you almost did build a starship. So <laughs> this is kind of intriguing, but I don't know where you want to start. I just give people a little sense of how it is that you became such a catalyst for, uh, you know, innovation and ostensibly electrification and 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 green sort of uh, aviation? Uh, what what uh, when when did this happen? Was it you know walking around in the forests uh, in Europe or <laughs> looking up in the sky? You know, people have all kinds of reasons for getting into aviation. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know how deeply I've been able to psychoanalyze my childhood to know sort of exactly when when the spark came. Um, but I, you know, I grew up in a pretty, pretty STEM, uh, STEM oriented family. My dad's a mathematician. My mother's a programmer and, uh, and I've always been a, a technological optimist. Um, you know, if I were maybe to pin something in my childhood, uh, to why, um, I grew up devouring the works of Jules Verne. 
um, and uh, you know, who was a uh, obviously an early early sci-fi. Some say the original sci-fi uh, creator of the genre. Um, and, uh, and I, uh, it just always captivated me. Right. So I grew up as a, as a technological optimist. Um, so I think that technology is, is the single greatest force for good in the history of, of, of our species. And I wanted to be at the bleeding edge, right. I wanted to do the coolest stuff, right. Build, uh, build the most interesting, uh, technological, um, artifacts that we build as a civilization. And aerospace engineering was kind of a natural one, right. Cause it's kind of, it immediately captures your imagination. It is, uh, uh, to use the cliche, of, a bit the cliche, right? But it is the final frontier, right? The last frontier of, of exploration. Um, and so, so I was always captivated, but you know, it's very difficult for a teenage boy to, uh, to do anything other than dream to become an astronaut. And so instead I said, I'm just gonna become a pilot. And so got my pilot's license before I got my driver's license. Uh, or at least I soloed in an airplane before I soloed in a car. Maybe that's a more accurate, uh, uh, more accurate, accurate description. And, and that was, that was in high school, sort of my, my teenage years. Um, and, and then it was kind of a foregone conclusion that I would be, I would be an aerospace engineer because we built the coolest stuff. Um, <laughs> and, and, and as I got into the industry, you know, I, I did, I did a lot of work on the defense side on the military side at, at DARPA. And, and I think that's important. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big American patriot because I think this country gave me sort of a new, a new life and, and allowed me to uh, to kind of uh, realize my dreams, uh, so I'm very grateful for that, and, and was very very happy to give back uh, through through my service at, at DARPA. But but really, I think the um, uh, you know I think the 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 main force for good that uh, that aerospace brings. Well, maybe there's two, right? So one is the is the civil air transportation system, mm-hmm. which I think is has been the probably competing with the internet. Um, the greatest uh, force of globalization, cultural interchange, global trade, um, right? The inter- making our planet a more intertwined, uh, intertwined one, which I think is therefore more prosperous and more peaceful as a as a consequence, right? So I think the internet and the commercial air transportation system have been the two the two major drivers of that. Um, and then the second one, of course, is space exploration, which, as I said, is kind of the the the, the final frontier of uh, of, uh, of of discovery. And so those have always been the two things that have captivated me, right? So, so aerospace engineering, and then within that, the, the, the air transportation system and, and wow. space exploration. And, uh, and just on jumping the, back, yep. just jumping back to one thing you said earlier, uh, I, I was also a big, and am a big fan of Jules Verne. I was just curious, did you have a favorite book or do you, do, I mean, you devoured all of them, obviously, but uh, the, I mean, there's balloons, there's <laughs> mysterious islands, there's under the sea, there's all kinds of uh ecosystems that he kept you know captures in his writing yeah i I guess i have two favorites one is strictly on the sci-fi aspects you know i really enjoyed from earth to the moon right and the idea of a gun gun launch which actually is something a a topic rail rail launch is a topic that i I revisited and spent some time on later in my career at at darpa um uh, so it's not it's not such a crazy idea that 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 jules verne had Uh, and then the second one which is a personal favorite which is actually not a sci-fi novel it's kind of a horror gothic horror novel if anything it's called the chancellor uh which is about a you know maybe you know it uh uh, and it's a it's a ship that's marooned and there's cannibalism and all sorts of other (laughs) other horrible (laughs) stuff stuff that goes on but it's a psychological thriller um those are probably my two my two favorites um let's jump to the industry because uh, like you pointed out right so aviation and you know we all think of it 
uh, I guess now as you know airplanes and uh, and and it has an impact on, on on you know trade on the economy and leisure travel. Obviously, it has changed the way we perhaps appropriate other cultures that we would never have uh, seen or at least discover and and, and you know fly over <laughs> and uh, you know get in touch with. But you said it was akin to the internet and impact. I'm just kind of curious as you think about you know and and you went into this industry thinking uh, that you wanted to to be an innovator in this industry. What is it that y you think has made the the biggest impact? Is it the speed of uh, of air travel? Is it uh, I mean, w w which part of it is it that really where the exponential nature comes in? Yeah, and, and you're right to note that it's exponential, right? Because aviation traffic volumes have doubled about every 15 years since the since the beginning of the jet age. And, uh, and I, so I think it is cost and safety, right? Because I think those are the two things that most people care about. Um, I don't think they care as much about speed, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think they want uh, air, air travel to be affordable, right? So that they can go on vacation and not have to save for, for years for a ticket. Um, and they want it to be to be safe uh, and you know much safe. It's one of the safest things we do today, right? Which is pretty incredible yeah. for a system as complex that has as many stakeholders, right? No centralized control. There's air traffic management. There's the ground crews. There's the airports. There's the plane itself, maintenance, fuel, right? All of these are are sort of independent stakeholders that come together to create this incredibly complex uh, global system that is one of the safest uh, experiences that you can have, right? Uh, akin to walking walking on the streets of a major city, right? Um, much, much safer than, than car travel uh, or any other kind of mobility and most other everyday activities, in fact, <laughs> right? So being on an airplane is, is really a, like a safe haven. Um, and it's right, incredible, right? right? So, so I think that safety element is actually one of the wonders of, of modern engineering. Uh, is the, the, you know, is it's the funny you say that because so many times, and I have a lot of technology uh, believers on this podcast, but, you know, uh, a lot of technology, you know, is about kind of reaching new, uh, you know, boundaries, but also like bragging rights. And the, the reason I mentioned speed was just simply that from a very like superficial view, you could kind of think, oh, well, you know, aviation, they, they, have, they have done their innovation. The innovation was, you know, whatever the system was when it was built out. And for, for the casual observer, it has taken a while to kind of launch the next level of innovation. So the reason I just mentioned speed is it's kind of a, it's a quick thing to go to, to, to measure progress in anything, right? And, you know, uh, speed, is, speed is one nature. Uh, give us a little sense of what you think it took to build the system that exists today. Because I think it's an important foundation for when we talk about decarbonizing or whatever we talk about changing this enormously amazing system that has been built. Give us a little sense of, you know, from your experience in, you know, Airbus or, or even just with technology projects, what is it that is so complicated to not replicate, but, you know, update when it comes to the basic structure of this, of this system? which it is, because it's not just a technology, right? It's a set of, um, it's an infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe just one comment on speed, uh, since since you, you bring it up again, is, I mean, the, look, the fundamental issue with speed is that the energy consumption goes like the square. And actually, if you fa factor in sort of the transonic and supersonic aerodynamics, ends up being like the cube of velocity, right? So, right. Um, so speed is very, very expensive, both from a ticket cost uh, perspective and from an emissions perspective. 
Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I don't think that speed, you know, everybody like fast airplanes are cool. Right. And my senior thesis was on a supersonic business jet and, and it was really cool. But as I, as I grew up and matured a little bit, right. I realized that that's not, that's not the important thing. And that kind of the, 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 the existential challenge of, uh, of, for the industry of our generation of, of aerospace engineers is in fact more on the emissions side than it is on trying to go faster. Um, I, I, that's a great introduction to what I wanted you to talk a little bit about, but let's, let's maybe stop at DARPA for one second. I mean, there's so many things in your background that I really wanted to hone in a little bit, but let's talk about this idea of building a hundred year starship. And then I do want to go back to MIT, which is kind of where a lot of stuff starts, but let's sure. talk about the starship business. So not only did you actually end up running, uh, you know, an advanced technology program at DARPA and there was this starship idea component research projects in there but you you must have developed this idea that you wanted to really have a hand in starship so what is what is this 100 year starship program and and did you did you feel like you have you've had a hand in building a starship already well n not quite yet not quite yet but um uh, so 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 look uh, in the grand scheme of things right uh, uh, for darpa this was an infinitesimally small small project i think we spent a total of a million dollars or maybe it was even half a million dollars from DARPA and half a million dollars from NASA on on this project. So it was it was uh, it, it was it was a very very small expenditure. But a lot of people made a lot of people made a lot of noise. It made a lot of noise. Some some good, yeah. some bad. Um, yeah. But uh, the the idea behind the project wasn't so much to build a starship, um, but to answer the question of what would it take to build a starship, um, right. and and in part it's from an organizational and innovation model perspective. Right. right. Uh, recognizing that interstellar travel is really hard. And if you want to do interstellar travel for people, right, so not just a, a probe that might weigh a few grams, which there are ways of doing that probably sooner rather than later. But if you want to send you know, people, more than one person uh, or, or even a colony of people to to the nearest star system, this is a kind of a hundred year uh, technology development and investment order, hundred year. Right. I mean, maybe maybe more, maybe less, but but some century long kind of thing. And, and we as a, as a species aren't very good at doing things over periods of time like that. In fact, I mean, if you look at, at NASA's history, particularly since Apollo, um, there's like a new, every, new administration comes in, sets a new priority, and one day we're going to the moon, one day we're going to Mars, one day we're going to an asteroid, then we're back, uh, back to Mars, right? And, and as a result, we go nowhere um, yep. because we keep changing our mind as to what is the, what is the next priority and, and, and sort of abandoning a bunch of, a bunch of projects. And so the question was, if, if you want to have sustained investment into a massive goal over uh, uh, something on the order of a century, what does the organizational structure and innovation model for that look like? Because right? yeah. you also yeah. can't even predict what kinds of technologies you will be investing in by the end of the century-long project at the beginning when, when you're starting it. So it was, it was much more focused on that. Um, and, and it was kind of a joint, uh, joint brainchild with... Um, with a NASA executive named Pete Warden, uh, former Air Force general, um, uh, 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 kind of a, a very pioneering, very, very, uh, very innovative guy, uh, today runs the Breakthrough, uh, Breakthrough Prize. Um, and, uh, and at the time ran the NASA Ames Research Center. And so this was kind of a joint idea of, of hey, let's bring together all the all sort of the best minds around this theme. And let's try to figure out what a structure looks like that allows us to pursue the, pursue this goal over the course of a century. Um, well, and let's, so that's, uh, let's that's go into the, 
<laughs> got it. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's get into the the extreme future in a, in a second. I was just sort of curious, uh, you know, just to set up the stage here that yep. you, you're not just dealing with near term uh, technology development in aviation and and decarbonization. You're you've dealt with the longer term, and I want to really get back to this longer term. But for now, so. Universal hydrogen and this challenge that you have set yourself uh, to decarbonate, decarbonize uh, aviation, what is really the challenge, apart from what I think everybody has realized, is that you know current aviation is not very sustainable and it does need to change. So these are like things that most people can agree with. The industry seems to have agreed on it, um, but the lift is extensive. Which part of this problem is it that you feel is important to tackle? I've read a little bit about your uh, your approach, but I want to sort of understand it from, from your side. Is it a, um, you know, is it a challenge of building completely new airplanes or is it more to tweak the business model so that it can st- gradually start to take in, you know, alternative uh, fuels and approaches? What, what is kind of the uh, what is the big thing that has to change for hydrogen and I guess any other green fuel source to really start making a difference? Because there's obviously SAF and 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 perhaps some other approaches. We we talked in our prep about nuclear fuels and you know there's obviously many ways to theoretically to get there. Yeah, so let me let me frame the problem maybe this way, and I think this also uh, maybe harks back to to a question that you asked earlier that we sort of left left on the table around uh, uh, you know how did the air transportation system get to where it is today, right? This right. incredible level of safety uh, and cost efficiency, right. uh, and and so look, so aviation traffic volumes, as I said, are uh, uh, exponential, uh, so du- doubling time of fifteen years, um, and and so as a result, emissions grow exponentially. Um, aircraft technology improvements, right? So improvements in engine, fuel consumption, aerodynamic efficiency, structural mass efficiency, those those sorts of things are on the order of single digit percentages at this point, right? So we are very much on the flat part of the technology curve. Um, mm-hmm. We've really picked a dominant design, and this has been key to building building this very successful air transportation system. Is picking a dominant design and refining the heck out of it, right? So. So the tube and wings uh, airplane configuration with you know two turbofan engines um, and one or two aisles inside the cabin has kind of emerged as this uh, as this clearly clearly dominant design, and we tweak tweak it a little bit right. We do a little bit of material substitution here, you know, uh, uh, um, and uh, and and eke, eke out a couple of percent of efficiency, but nowhere near to counteract the the continued exponential traffic growth. Right, so if you overlay that traffic and emissions growth, um, even with the te- incremental technology improvements, on top of the Paris Agreement, kind of the 1.5 degree or two degree uh, global warming emission scenario, uh, mm-hmm. they are they are, they look like almost like mirror images, <laughs> right? Uh, in in the sense that you need you really need to be to be driving very aggressively towards zero um, in the next couple of decades, and aviation is going in the opposite direction, and so. Um, so, so there's no no amount of aerodynamic refinement or engine refinement or new new materials and structures are going to get you there. Um, the only thing that can get you there is a fundamentally different energy modality, right? Which really translates to a different fuel. 
Um, and and you can look at the at the at the whole space. Um, and I I have uh, this was my job at Airbus and and subsequently at United Technologies, is is to sort of look at, at the full option space and figure out what our technology roadmaps are, and uh, and. Uh, and in that option space are, are, for instance, batteries as an energy storage mechanism mm-hmm. and batteries based on existing electrochemistry, which, you know, the best we have today from an energy density perspective is lithium ion electrochemistry, which is what we have in our phones and consumer devices and Teslas and things like that. That electrochemistry is is an order of magnitude off in terms of energy density from from powering a large commercial airplane. Right. Um, that could, however, change, but it, that's also been another holy grail. Well, right? so there it, are it won't change. It won't change for there. lithium ion, right? So lithium ion. No, has surely. Any but, electrochemistry right. has a theoretical limit, right, on energy density, and right. so lithium ion again is on the flat part of the of the technology curve. So again, we can eke out a couple percent here and there, but there's not going to be a doubling, tripling, ten xing of lithium ion battery energy density. Yeah. There could be a new electrochemistry, absolutely, right, right. and there will be, yeah. uh, no doubt, there will be. The issue is that it took for lithium-ion batteries from the from the 1980s till the 2010s, 2010s, to go from a laboratory uh, to a mobility type application, cars, and now now small airplanes. And it'll probably you know technologies accelerate, right? So so great, maybe the next one will take 20 years or something like that to get from from lab to 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 avi- an aviation application. But it's not on a time scale that works for the Paris Agreement, right? So we can't mm-hmm. just bet. We should invest absolutely in new electrochemistry, right? <laughs> I'm not disputing mm-hmm. that, but but nothing on the drawing boards today is going to solve the large commercial aviation problem by 2050 to get to, to zero emissions by 2050. Can right. we run through a few others? So fission yeah. airplanes, uh, for example. Yeah, and this was a thing, right? So nuclear fission, fission energy. Uh, there were there were nuclear airplane prototypes flown in the U.S. and I, I think in the Soviet Union um, back in the in the heyday of the Cold War. Um, I, the issue, of course, is what happens if and when the airplane does inevitably crash, <laughs> right? Can you confine the can you confine the radioactivity uh, in that case? Um, and there's been some progress on this. Uh, for instance, you know, space launch with radio, radiothermal generators, right? Plutonium-based uh, plutonium batteries, as as they're colloquially called, um, happens fairly routinely now. Um, and and there's a variety of confinement mechanism around the RTG, as it's called, uh, in case of in case of a launch failure. But but still, those happen. You know, once every few years, they happen over the ocean. Right, and it's a fairly heavy and expensive confinement mechanism. So, so getting that productized in an aviation context and through through aviation safety certification um, would be would be a huge challenge. Um, mm-hmm. Unclear that it would be unclear that it would be feasible, and unclear that there would be a public appetite. Uh, to have nuclear reactors flying around and, on, on commercial aircraft, sort of ubiquitous. Got it. What about SAF? I mean, SAF is something that I think a, a lot of people have started to to look at, and and it's out there, and you know, journalists are writing about it. And uh, I, I guess the, the sort of the public consensus is, you know, yes, great, but there seems to be a problem with producing enough of it without having adverse consequences you know on agriculture and other things what what is the status of, of of saf right now i mean is it technically usable as a fuel in existing airplanes yeah so i mean the short answer to your to your question is yes it is it is it's certainly out there it is certainly usable um it doesn't make much of a difference versus uh versus fossil-based hydrocarbon fuels which is one of the beauties of saf is it's a drop in more or less a drop-in replacement for for existing fossil fuels but it is useful to, te- to to sort of understand its uh, sustain true sustainability, as the name suggests it is. Um, it's useful to tease apart maybe what, what is SAF, 
right? And there's two types of SAFs, uh, two principal families. One is biofuels. And so this is where you use biomass. Uh, so for instance, algae um, to basically produce the fuel. Um, and in the course of producing the fuel, the, the, the algae sequesters, sucks up carbon from the atmosphere, right? So you're still producing hydrocarbon uh, and then you're burning the hydrocarbon, right? And you're still producing all of the negative environmental impact and, and greenhouse emissions associated with that. But you've sucked up some carbon in the, in the, as the algae produces the fuel, right? That's simple, very simple, very stylized uh, description, but, but roughly that's it. The issue with the biomass stuff is in order to produce any meaningful volumes, you need incredible, incredible amounts of biomass. Um, and so to feed the entire air transportation system, you would need to like cover the Mediterranean with, uh, with, with algae, right? And it has a lot of other negative, uh, or, or if you use terrestrial biomass, right? You can, again, you start sort of covering immense land areas or, or sucking up farmland, right? There's a lot of ex negative externalities associated with, with uh, those kinds of volumes of biomass. And it's also expensive. Um, so as an alternative, uh, kind of the, the new trend in SAFs is uh, synthetic fuels also called e-fuels or powered liquid. Um, and, and here, what you do is you start with green hydrogen. So you've produced your green hydrogen using electrolysis, which is uh, basically running electricity through water to break H2O into H2 and O2. Um, and then you take the, take, take the hydrogen. And if you use renewable electricity, right, electrolysis is a totally clean process. So totally carbon-free to produce, uh, produce hydrogen uh, from water. Uh, so you take that hydrogen. And then you take carbon atoms and you attach the carbon atoms to the hydrogen and you get a hydrocarbon that resembles kerosene. And, and you stick that hydrocarbon into your airplane. And you, again, you take, you fly to 35,000 feet, you burn the hydrocarbon, you emit CO2. You also emit a bunch of non-CO2 uh, uh, pollutants, uh, some of which are strong greenhouse agents, right? So aerosols, soot, things like that. And so in fact, burning a hydrocarbon at 35,000 feet is about 2X worse uh, as burning a hydrocarbon at sea level. And, uh, and this is an important note because a lot of the SAF uh, calculus is a little bit funny math, right? Nobody takes into account the alt altitude effects of, of hydrocarbon combustion. And so, so anyway, so you produce all of this stuff at, at 35,000 feet, which is sort of the same. And you're like, why am I doing this? Because I could have, I, if I do this with a fossil fuel, I get a, almost exactly the same product at 35,000 feet. But you say, ah, but those carbon atoms that I attach to my, my green hydrogen at the very beginning, I sequestered them from the atmosphere in some fashion. Right, and that's my offsetting effect for all of the for all of the bad stuff that I do at thirty five thousand feet. So, is this better than nothing? Yes, it, it is absolutely better than doing nothing. Um, but it will always be more expensive than green hydrogen because you're just adding this carbon cycle on top of green hydrogen. Uh, right, green hydrogen is the initial feedstock, so by definition, this is more expensive. Um, and you are it's an offset scheme, right? So you're still doing all this stuff at thirty five thousand feet, right? But you're trying to atone for it in the production process of the fuel. And it's an can I can offset. I just insert a little parentheses question here? So yeah. what do you feel? How do you feel about this whole carbon accounting business and how it's currently playing out in industry? Generally. There's a lot of funny this math. Idea There's of, a lot of funny yeah. math going on. Because <laughs> you were starting right? on that thing, which uh, which it's, I have heard many times that yeah. the math is getting a little bit creative here and there. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, this is inevitable. That said, I think it's important to do the calculus, um, right? To understand, to do the cost-benefit analysis for the various means of decarbonizing uh, decarbonizing our our world economy. Um, so I think the accounting is incredibly important. You just have to make sure that you trust the accountant, right? And and in the case of SAFs, in a lot of cases, the accountant has perverse incentives, <laughs> so to speak, right? Like yeah, it's the fuel yeah, companies yeah. 
uh, that are peddling this. And so, so look, I, I don't want to come across as anti-SAF because the beautiful thing about SAF is it's a drop-in replacement. You can do it tomorrow. Um, no, I understand. And, 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 and it's, it's perhaps it's part of the solution, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Cool. So it's, it's perhaps it's, part of the solution. But uh, all right, so this was great. It's a great kind of backgrounder because, you know, even if you know a lot of these things, what you're about to explain to us, like, you, you know, your your proposal for for this new uh, aviation hydrogen economy and the value chains around it it's somewhat different G- give us a very uh, like a 101 a, a primer course course on 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 what should happen yeah absolutely so first of all hydrogen airplanes are not a new idea the first manned hydrogen airplane flew in the 1950s um, the soviets flew an airliner called the tupolev 155 which was a derivative of the tu-154 in, uh, in 1988, right? And so this is a full, full-scale, narrow-body airliner uh, that, that, that was flown on hydrogen. And there have been a number of smaller, and so those, those both the, the 50s activities and, and through the 80s, those are all hydrogen combustion. So that you're burning hydrogen in a jet engine that's very similar to a jet engine that you burn jet fuel in. Um, um, it, more recently, in the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of work, including many flying prototypes of uh, fuel cell airplanes. And so here you have a different way of converting hydrogen into energy. Uh, instead of instead of do, have a thermodynamic process as you have in a jet engine, you use a, an electrochemical process um, uh, in a fuel cell to generate electricity and then power an electric motor for propulsion. Um, and and, and so, uh, so both of those are relatively proven technologies. There, there have been demonstrators, they've never been certified, they have never been productized, but nobody doubts that you can build a hydrogen airplane. Like there's no science, right? There's engineering, but there's no science. Um, the, the, the question, the logical question is, well, why haven't we productized hydrogen airplanes, you know, back in the 50s? Um, and the answer is that there has never been enough green hydrogen. Uh, and what green hydrogen there is or there was, was not cost effective, was, was, was too expensive. And the reason for this is, is it just as a reminder, again, green hydrogen versus any other kind of hydrogen is hydrogen that's made using electrolysis, uh, and using renewable electricity to drive electrolysis, so there's no carbon anywhere in the production process. Because another well, way to make hydrogen, for, for, yeah. can you just quickly go through the green, gray, blue hydrogen issue, like in a, yeah, in sure, a minute? Sure. Because it is confusing, but it is super relevant for what you are about to t- uh, talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so. So I don't think I don't think your listeners need to really remember all the different colors of hydrogen. Uh, I think there's just green and non-green, and non-green. Okay usually means that there is carbon in the production process. And so another way, for instance, to produce hydrogen is to take a hydrocarbon, (laughs) right? Like a methane methane molecule, for instance, and crack it, extract the hydrogen, but then you have a bunch of leftover carbon that you got to do something with. But wait a second. I mean, it is important. The color obviously is not important, but it is important when people are basically appropriating the hydrogen argument and have no plan to put in place green hydrogen. I mean, that that's is right. a bit of a, that is that's, fake math, right? Uh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you, so, so most of the other colors of hydrogen denotes uh, that you, that you're probably cracking some sort of hydrocarbon to produce the hydrogen. Um, yeah. You're probably using non-renewable electricity as the input source of, of, of energy into the process. Um, right. The only slight exception is there's something called pink hydrogen, just somewhere in the color spectrum, um, which is hydrogen produced using nuclear power. Um, and, and that one is carbon is in fact carbon free, right? So, so pink hydrogen, you know, again, I don't want to get into a nuclear debate, <laughs> but, right, right. Uh, but to the extent that, that we agree that nuclear power is, is clean, 
right? Pink hydrogen is, is just as clean as green hydrogen. Um, all right. So, so, you know, having said all these things, what is the true path to a hydrogen economy in aviation? What is it that yeah. needs to, to happen? Yeah. So, so, so one of the things that has happened, uh, uh, in, in just the last, uh, the last few years is the fact that green hydrogen production has, uh, uh, has been on an exponentially increasing volume trajectory and on an exponentially decreasing cost trajectory. Um, and the fundamental driver of this is the fact that, that the world has significantly increased renewable electricity production and renewable, the cost of input electricity is the single biggest driver of, of, of the cost of hydrogen coming out of the electrolysis process because water is cheap. Um, and, and so, um, still, and, and still, cheap, still, yes. still cheap. Yes. Relatively. Yeah. Um, not, maybe so, not forever. And it depends where, right? I mean, I mean water in space so, is still not this, cheap. Yeah, th this is true. Yeah. That is a fair point. That is an absolutely fair point. Um, uh, and so, so as the growth in renewable capacity has grown, right? If you imagine, for instance, a wind farm or a hydropower project or a, or a geothermal energy project, um, you typically would size the project for peak power consumption of whatever, whatever you're driving, a factory or a city. And then off peak, um, that electricity gets dumped, right? Because there's no, there's not an efficient way. You don't do batteries at that scale. It's very expensive. Right. So, so we just dump the electricity from, from these renewable projects off peak. And so running electrolyzers, which are things that can be turned on and off pretty rapidly, um, is actually a really good way to scavenge very, very inexpensive renewable electricity because nobody else wants it. Right. Um, and, and turn it into green and turn it into green hydrogen. And so as the growth in world renewable electricity production has grown very quickly over the past years after the, the ratification of the Paris Agreement, um, uh, so has the amount of off peak available renewable electricity, which can then be used for hydrogen production. And so the cost and volume, uh, volume has gone up of green hydrogen, cost has come down to a point where the intersection between the cost of green hydrogen and the cost of jet fuel um, is, is, well, if you, if you include the, the, if you price in the war in Ukraine and its impact on oil prices, the intersection mm -hmm. point has already happened. Um, if you don't take the war, if you take sort of the pre-war projections on 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 uh, electricity and uh, electricity prices and, and oil prices, um, then the intersection point is around 2025, right? So and 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 it's here, and you can now go sign a contract for hydrogen delivery at that price, right? So it's not just a it's not just a model projection, uh, but it's uh, there's real 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 vendors. Uh, willing to sell you forward price hydrogen in 2025 at that cost. Hmm. And so, so, so that's solved. So the airplane is solvable. The availability of green hydrogen and the cost of green hydrogen is on a trajectory to be solved by the mid 2020s. Um, the missing piece in the hydrogen value chain is how do you get the hydrogen from the point of production to the airplane? Right. And so it's a transportation logistics. It's issue. an infrastructure. Yeah. It's a pure infrastructure question. And, and if you do it the same way you do jet fuel today, which is typically you do it in a tanker truck, you offload yeah. from the tanker truck into a storage reservoir, and then you have a fleet of fuel trucks that run from an airport storage reservoir to the airplane, right? Or at some airports, you will do, uh, you will run a pipeline, right? So for instance, at LAX, there's a pipeline from the Chevron refinery on the other side of El Segundo to, to LAX. Um, or you could do on-site refining, which is rare. Um, Except if uh, you do run a pipeline with hydrogen, right? You have to have some capacity you still got to store it. Comes out, yeah. Yeah. You got to store it. it. You may have to liquefy it or compress it, right? And so, liquefy so yeah. it in, right. So in any of these approaches, in any, if you sort of replicate the way we do jet fuel, um, there is a very significant cost for new infrastructure at the airport and to the airport. 
And if and you in order for this to really be adopted, it has to happen near simultaneously at every major airport in the world. Right. Hmm. And and the question is, who pays? And you're you were now in like trillion dollar territory. How long does it mm-hmm. take? And we're now in decadal territory. And these are government. Yep. This has to be government funded. Right. And by multi, multitudes of governments at the same time. And so that seems like a non-starter. And that has been the single biggest impediment in recent years to, to, to hydrogen adoption for aviation. And if you, if you go to Airbus today, right, and you say, hey, Airbus, like you've talked about hydrogen, you've studied hydrogen, why aren't you building a hydrogen airplane? Um, they will say, because there's no infrastructure, right? Not because the hydrogen is too expensive, or we can't get the hydrogen, or we can't build the airplane, or we can't get an engine. All of those are solvable issues where there is clear line of sight to solving them, but there is not a clear line of sight to solving the infrastructure question. And so this is why we created Universal Hydrogen. So we'll get to that in, in one second because the, some I think your investor uh, got me on to one of your investors got me on to this idea that your solution is analogous to the Nespresso pod and that was intriguing for me as a <laughs> metaphor. So we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted you to maybe before that just talk about any sort of case study of real government slash aviation industry collaboration. So I know that you know Airbus being uh, you know French company there there is some work at the airport of Lyon I, I believe there is a project and there certainly is a German project on these things and there is now a British public private partnership effort that I've read about so I've read it you know in each big European country there is some effort I don't know how real these things are and when they will be up and flying uh, but generally where do we stand when it comes to uh, airports and airlines having truly tested this or started to really project what what would it take even to do it small scale, which you're sort of saying before it's almost impossible to do it small scale because you either do it or you don't. Yeah, yeah, and that's fundamentally the crux, right? And I so I think everybody sees the allure of hydrogen aviation, or many people see the allure of hydrogen aviation. In many ways, hydrogen is the ideal fuel uh, for aviation because it has the highest gravimetric energy density, right? Energy per unit mass of any any non-nuclear fuel. Um, and so, which is why it's used in rocket launch and aviation is next. So I think people see the see this vision, right? And they say, well, we must be able to solve the infrastructure problem. So let's try, let's try to do it, right? So so yeah, there is a bunch of projects. We are we are part of many of those projects. Um, with a slightly orthogonal approach, right? That says, hey, I think we found a better solution. Um, uh, but the other problem that I didn't mention that I think a lot of these projects are now discovering is that whereas hydrogen is great from a gravimetric energy density perspective, it's not so good from a volumetric energy density perspective, which means right. that- So what does that mean? Does that mean that the planes will get heavier or is it just, I mean, because how much does this stuff weigh up there when, well, when, when it, or is it more of a space issue? So it's a space it issue. Physically yeah, it's fu- fundamentally, it's a space issue, which can translate into a weight issue. But, but it, well, un- eventually, un- right. Yeah, the tr- exactly. exactly. Because the planes bubble, will be yeah. bigger and that's right. no matter what it, yeah, exactly. That's right. But, but fundamentally, it's a space issue, but, but uh, specifically on the infrastructure question, we can talk about airplane configurations in a second, but specifically on the infrastructure question, what it means is so hydrogen, uh, liquid hydrogen is about four times less dense than jet fuel on an equivalent energy basis. What this means is that your fueling operation for an airplane, if you do it the traditional way from like a fuel truck or a fuel tap on the tarmac into the wing or into the, mm-hmm. the, into the fuselage, um, will take four times longer. So if an airplane today takes 20 minutes to fuel, uh, it'll take an hour and 20 minutes with hydrogen, which destroys the unit economics uh, for airlines. The alternative is you make your fueling aperture four times bigger. And you've seen this probably in some of these infrastructure projects, right, where they, they have these humongous 
hydrogen fueling things. And then you got to build a robot arm and like a crane to like attach the fueling thing to the airplane. And, and it's almost comical. Um, and, and I just don't think it's going to happen. I think brute forcing it using the existing mental model that we have of how fueling needs to work based on jet fuel and just being like, oh, but now it's liquid hydrogen. I think it's, it's, I, I just, it's just not the right approach. I think the physics won't work at the airplane level. And I think the, the economics of infrastructure won't work at a global level. It sort of reminds me, and at a just an individual, the only way we would get in touch, I guess, with with this uh, on a personal level is if you try to buy the Toyota Mirai, the the hydrogen car. <laughs> I, yes, I was looking into that proposal for for New England, and because they was always promised that we would get some uh, some of those cars, but of course the fueling stations, the closest fueling station was in Canada, so I decided against <laughs> having such a car, especially yep. now that you're telling me it's going to take me four x the the amount of time to fuel up. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. there are some things that need to be solved there and because on a car, I can't imagine that they would make the, the opening, you know, four times larger. Yeah. All yeah, right. So, so, so lots of Mar- challenges here. Yeah. Just a quick comment on the Mirai. So we, my, our COO actually has, uh, has a Toyota Mirai. Um, so they use gaseous hydrogen um, uh, and, uh, and, the, and quite clever uh, protocols for fueling at the gas station. So you won't spend half an hour fueling your car at the gas station. Um, but it is, it is complex. And actually one of the things that, that, that we're, I think, seeing with the Mirai is that the pace of fueling infrastructure hasn't grown, uh, uh hasn't kept pace with the growth in demand in, in Mirai sales. So it's a huge pain point for Mirai owners here in Southern California, where, where we are, um, uh, is, is. Yes. And there, to that point, the Mirai hasn't actually even arrived in New England because obviously you don't have a fueling station. there's no fueling it's, infrastructure. Yeah. Y- so yeah, infrastructure like, is, be a- yep pretty serious pioneer to, to buy that and, and, and drive That's to right. Canada to fuel it up. That's right. So, so I think, uh, I mean, the takeout, so it's a different, it's a different problem. It's a different architecture, right? So I don't want to make them, I don't want to draw a perfect analogy here, but the notion that the infrastructure is the, is the Achilles heel here, I think does translate well from, from the Mirai to, to the, to the airplane world, but it's not the Yeah, car. I just wanted to bring it up car. because it's, well, it's a beautiful car and it's an example of how an individual might, you know, just eventually will relate to this because this technology, yeah. it, it exists for uh, yeah. personal transportation as yeah. well. Yeah. Okay, so back to your Nespresso pods. Uh, <laughs> I have had those. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. is, is that, that, that's your solution here. It's a completely different packaging of, uh, of the energy. Yeah, I mean the the basic idea, which which I think seems obvious in hindsight, <laughs> but was not necessarily obvious in, in foresight, was uh, you know rather than building a brand new infrastructure um, yeah. into the airport, and today most airports have three kinds of infrastructure that they can do well at scale. Right, they know how to handle mm-hmm. passengers, right? They mm-hmm. know how to handle cargo, and they know how to handle jet fuel. Right, those are kind of the three three big streams of stuff that flow into airports. And, and, uh, and we said, okay, so rather than trying to replicate the jet fuel infrastructure for hydrogen, why don't we just turn hydrogen into freight and use the existing cargo handling uh, stream that goes into every airport in the world, every major airport in the world, um, and use that to deliver the hydrogen to the airplane, right? And so, so the basic idea is you put hydrogen in these modular capsules. The modular capsules are compatible with shipping containers, existing intermodal shipping containers. So these are the things that go in the back of a flatbed truck, uh, on a train, on a, on a ship, right? Um, the containerized freight already has an existing flow into, into every airport. And then you take it out of the container and you use the existing palletized cargo handling equipment that you have at the airport 
to move it around and ultimately load it into the airplane. And it becomes the primary fuel structure. The capsule, the modular capsule becomes the primary fuel tank for the, for the flight. Um, and, and it's then interesting it's expended, you say this. Yeah. Uh, I, I have heard that in logistics these days, this concept of the physical internet or ideas from the internet, literally onto like packet switching and standardization, sure. that is yeah, essentially what you're suggesting. Right, you're suggesting to take some of the ideas from standardized, you know, logistics networks, and uh, perhaps even kind of, I guess, the openness of the internet, and then put that onto a physical infrastructure in the, you know, in aviation. But I, I understand that the logistical challenges, no one has really thought about that for all kinds of logistics. So there's this, this the concept that you're suggesting here, is. It sounds simple, right? Why weren't people thinking about that before? But the existing infrastructure wasn't really set up that way. So my question is, how would that how would that work? What what, what does have to change for this to uh, to truly scale? Because the the appeal of it is, it sounds very logical. What you're saying, it sounds even very simple, almost overly simplistic. Like why are, didn't people think of this before? Why were they thinking of tankers and, you know, a whole separate infrastructure when there already is a delivery network into, into airports? Yeah, well, you know, uh, the advent of the, of the standardized shipping container is probably one of the greatest inventions that, uh, that enabled the modern economy. But it was 1964. And- uh, I mean, the it, it was surprising. Well, I think I think early, early versions were in the early 20th century, right? But it's still sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the standard and when it was so, fully standard. Yeah, the ISO but. standard much later. Um, but but surprisingly late, right? And and right. and again, in retrospect, like a super obvious thing, but probably should go down in history as one of the greatest inventions of all time, right? But but a, but a very Agreed. obvious one. And so so I I I, I don't want to quite aggrandize our concept as at the same level right because really we're just tweaking the the cargo container concept to to adapt it here right but uh but do not underestimate sort of the power of modularity in fact i somebody joked uh, joked the other day that i've made a whole career out of modularity because at darpa i did modular satellites uh then yes. at google google and motorola i did modular phones at airbus we did a modular cabin cabin interiors right now we're doing modular fuel uh, so I think modularity is one of the uh, is one of the great underexploited uh, architectural concepts. And and you are absolutely right, of course, that the internet and the the um, the TCP/IP protocol stack they right, are all course, is modular. A, is a, exactly, exactly. Is the same. Well, I mean, if any young people are listening to this, right? It, I, I guess it goes uh, to the point of you know, like uh, I, I guess just look look around and sort of digest what's going on around you because you've been able to translate a principle that occurred in one domain and and you have successfully transported it into other domains and and productized it in completely different categories it, i think it's i think it's a feat rather than than a criticism <laughs> honestly but. no i don't think it's a criticism yeah but it's uh yeah it's it's uh, it's, 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 it's a funny it's, interesting it's a theme. interesting yep. feat yeah that's yeah. right that's right all right, so um, so that's what you think has to be done. How, how's that going? Is it uh, what what is the challenge with getting this off the ground? Then, so the challenge is to make the modular capsule uh, light enough and safe enough, right? And and light enough, of course, is 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 it, it because it becomes the primary fuel structure on the airplane, um, and that's to avoid this fueling operation, airside fueling operation. So the only fueling operation for us is at the point of production when you're when it's not time critical. Right, is at the at the at the electrolyzer site, 
Um, and uh, and so uh, so making it lightweight enough so that it does not adversely affect the you know the max takeoff weight of the airplane um, is is one big challenge. And then the second one is is the safety aspect. Um, and I think when uh, and thank you for making it three quarters of the hour through through our interview today uh, without mentioning the Hindenburg. Um, but, but, uh, so I applaud yourself. I didn't plan to mention it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, but it, it inevitably, you know, when you talk about hydrogen, it's in, it inevitably comes up, right? And the question Yeah. I mean, right. Ed, there is a risk that things will blow up. And I, I bet that aviation is not one of the industries that's going to take a lot of risks. Uh, right. That's right. So, I mean, so, so first of all, jet fuel also is highly flammable and volatile and all of those things, right? So you are already right. flying on a bomb, essentially, right? When, when you sit on a, on a passenger airplane. Um, and, but we've had, you know, what, 60, 70 years since the beginning of the jet age to, to d develop various safety features. So for hydrogen, we need to do that on a much, much more compressed uh, uh, timescale. But it, it is very doable. And the intrinsic properties of hydrogen are actually much better for safety than uh, than than jet fuel. Uh, mm -hmm. One one example that I think in the automotive world, uh, as as hydrogen cars uh, started to make a bit of inroads, um, uh, is that uh, in a crash, um, uh, gasoline right or jet fuel tends to pool, and so the fire tends to sort of spread and and engulf the entire entire area of the of the accident. Whereas with hydrogen, it's so light that you just get a column of flame, but it's very very localized. It doesn't pool. It doesn't spread. And so frequently in a, in a hydrogen car crash, uh, the passenger compartment is completely unaffected, whereas it would be completely consumed by fire in a, in a, gasoline, in a similar gasoline uh, hmm. sort of incident. So that's just one example. There's many other. And so, so yep. there's a variety of safety features that we have to build into our modular capsules. So leak detection and venting and, and things like that. Um, uh, and so those are, those are, those are kind of uh, the challenges. They are not, they're not huge. Um, so we do expect these to be in the first certified passenger carrying commercial aviation application for mm -hmm. uh, kind of 40 to 60 seat um, regional airplanes uh, by 2025. So in just a couple of years, and we timed that 2025 very carefully, right? Because that's the intersection point in the unit economics uh, from, from between hydrogen and jet fuel. All right, so the regional aviation market will get this first, and then you'll move to the single aisle aviation market and then potentially into what trucking and uh, maritime and rail and all kinds of transportation uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the basically the future outlook for this and what it by when and what will it do to mobility basically will it fit all within the existing paradigm and what will kind of happen to this? Are we, are we talking kind of incrementally introducing this? Like you're serving it up as like, okay, by 2025, it makes a lot of sense. We can reach those milestones. Or does it still depend on uh, some amount of technology leaps or indeed a public-private investment of some sort that changes the game? Some agreement, you know, at the... UN level that we're going to all move to this by X date. And if you don't, you can operate, you know, FAA and other things, you know, all the regulatory authorities will sort of say, like, we're going to set a deadline. And if you don't have this by then, you're in, a, you're in violation of X number of protocols and you will get all kinds of punishments. I mean, is this kind of how this is going to evolve? Yeah, I think... Um, so I think a, a top-down international mandate probably isn't the approach and probably wouldn't fly politically, frankly, 
in a lot of mm -hmm. countries. I, I can imagine a, a U.S. administration opposing opposing that quite quite vigorously, uh, as an example. But in the EU, uh, though, you could envision that at that the EU level, happen. that's possible. Yeah, yeah, it is possible right. at the EU level. Um, the issue, of course, is if it's enforced in one region but not in other regions, can you know are there airplanes that are then sort of trapped in that region, right? Cause well, that didn't else. stop the Europeans so, from enforcing GDPR, right? Uh, so. Yeah, this this is true. Maybe not a perfect analogy, right? Uh, because because the cost of, of implementing a, a digital policy globally is 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 relatively minimal, right? And and uh, here you really do have a physical sort of a physical infrastructure cost that that can can add up. Yeah, anyway, no, I think I mean, that I guess my point my point is maybe uh, simpler than that is that I think the easiest way to to drive adoption is if it can be done on an airline by airline basis. Um, mm -hmm. rather than everybody in the world having to agree all at once. Um, that's and is this that's already happening with the uh, zero uh, emission, net zero emission pledges by 2050, which, I mean, by last year, I think they include many of the big airlines, you know, Air France, uh, AA, British Airways, yeah. certainly Delta. Many of them have pledged, you know, the 2050 uh, pledge here, which would mean that, you know, and Airbus, I think, obviously, has made more, even more aggressive, and they've they've said twenty thirty five as like some, yep. some deadline for them. Yeah. So on these pledges, so 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 first of all, I think the pledges are are a step in the right direction because not so long ago, maybe five ten years ago, um, we were just making up different targets for the aviation sector that didn't match the Paris Agreement uh, because we felt felt like we couldn't, right? So the fact that now people are making public pledges and saying, okay, by twenty fifty, we'll try to get to zero unclear on what trajectory between now and 2050, because it's not just the 2050 number that matters, right? It's the, the profile of the emissions trajectory between now and then matters. But never mind, it's, it's a step in the right direction. Um, the, the reason that I think a lot of people are making these pledges is it doesn't cost them anything to make a pledge. Um, and, most, and, the, and the people making the pledge are pretty sure that they'll be retired, if not dead. Right by the time by the time the the hens come to roost, so to speak. Right by the time they have to. I deliver. plan to be alive in 2050. Just I do too. Well, I <laughs> and, and if not, at least for cryogenically preserved somewhere. So right. right. Um, so I think the um, uh, so I think the question I would I would ask each of them right is so what's what's the plan right like how do we get there, and if the, your answer is SAF, um, I call BS right because it's not going to get you yep. there if that's the only answer. It's part of the answer, sure. It's a thing that you can do tomorrow and go and we should do it. Um, uh, and to the extent that that people are willing to, governments are willing to subsidize SAF, it can it can uh, it can even make economic sense for the airlines. Um, but 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 I there there's just not a solution space as we discussed uh, outside of SAF and hydrogen that works on this timescale. So hydrogen is an inevitable part of the conversation. But in order for hydrogen, so two thirds of aviation emissions, or about sixty percent to be fair, uh, come from the single aisle. Right? This is the narrow body segment. This is the A320 737 class of airplane. So it is not the big, it's not the, the big jumbo aircraft that fly you know, from Heathrow to Sydney. Um, it's the much smaller airplanes that fly intra-Europe, uh, intra-US, and, and occasionally maybe from Heathrow to JFK on a low-cost carrier. Right? And the reason that those produce the most emissions is because there are so many of them and they fly so frequently. Right, so that is the segment that, in one fell swoop, would solve about two thirds two thirds of the problem. And the good news, in some sense, is that both the 737 family and the A320 family, both of the major single aisles in the world, are quite old products. Right, and this was at the root of the of the 737 Max debacle that Boeing went through in the last couple of years. Right, was right. that they created yet another derivative, 
right? The umpteenth derivative of the 737, which is an old airplane. And they had to make some changes and put a digital augmentation system and do all of this stuff, pile all of this stuff on a very old design. And, and it didn't turn out well, right? And so, so I think it is quite clear that there will not be another derivative of the 737. And probably the A320 is a little younger, but but of not 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 too uh, also a little long in the tooth as a family. So so both will probably do a new single aisle for entry into mm-hmm. service in the 2030s, which means a program launch decision in the late 2020s. And and so, so, so that I is have the a opportunity. Questions. So I see the yeah. opportunity, but I have two questions then. So when will hydrogen jet fuel, in as much uh, you know, reach cost parity with sort of jet A fuel? And 2025, 2025. So, and if that happens, yep. will, will you know, production of green hydrogen have caught up so that you want cost parity? I, I guess they have to go hand in hand because if there is- You got to no, have volume parity, right? <laughs> you got to have volume parity, in, yeah. not just cost parity. So what That's we're right. saying with this 2025 number is all of the above. You're saying there will be availability and cost parity. So, so in fairness, right, if you say, can I feed the entire single aisle fleet in the world with green hydrogen in 2025? The answer is no, right? There will not be enough production in 2025. The opportunity, however, is more like 2035 for when you have to start feeding the single aisle fleet because there is a new single aisle from Boeing and or Airbus that is a hydrogen airplane. And so you have a decade, right? Uh, and, and it won't be maybe seven or eight years from program launch until entry into service in which the Boeings and the Airbuses and hopefully the universal hydrogens of the world have time to send a demand signal, right? And say, we've committed to a single aisle. Hello, hydrogen producers of the world. We need you to start ramping up production such that by 2035, you can start feeding the single aisle fleet. And by 2045, you're feeding the entire global single aisle fleet. Paul, you know, what strikes me about this whole discussion is that it's so interesting because, you know, it's so easy to think of technology implementation, I mean, innovation as some sort of brainiac team, you know, sitting in a hangar, inventing stuff, but it's actually coordination. What you're talking about is international coordination across multiple actors, business models, deciding the sequential nature of this is going to be what decides whether this is realistic or not by, by the timeframes that you've been talking about. Yep, it's I not that's you know, right. some brainiac coming up with, uh, you know, even if there are smaller leaps needed, that doesn't seem to be what's going to decide whether this is going to happen or not by 2035, I guess, you know, what you're saying is. Yep. No, that's, yeah. that's, I think you're exactly right. And our philosophy in creating this company was uh, not to focus on one specific product, right, or one specific leap, uh, innovative leap, um, but was really to create the glue right, that would mm-hmm. make the, hy- orchestrate the hydrogen value chain end to end, right? So for instance, to be the conduit for that demand signal, right? To be yep. Boeing's and Airbus's partner for, for fuel, for modular fuel services for their new airplane. And then we have our, uh, uh, so, uh, our key investors are hydrogen producers, right? And we have relationships with, with hydrogen producers globally, right? And to transmit that demand signal and say, okay, seven years from now, you'll need to have, you know, X demand, right? And here's the demand curve, right? And let's try, let's start signing agreements both on the demand side with airlines, right? And then on the production side with with hydrogen producers so that, uh, so there's a flow of capital, right? And assurance of future revenues, right? To make the, the economics work for everybody, right? So that's so, a lot so that of, our, means, of know, our role is value, this no, value chain integration. 
But that means that you you may have some blueprint suggestions for what an airplane should look like, but you are Absolutely. gambling essentially that there will be producers, you know, that Boeing and Airbus and Embraer and whoever it is are going to implement these airplanes because without them, you know, all you have is your pods. Yep. So we're trying not to gamble. <laughs> we're trying to make it a certainty or at least as near a certainty as possible in the regional space. We are actually yep. doing this as aircraft conversions as opposed to new airplanes. And that is mm -hmm. so that in, by 2025, we have a totally permissionless business model for the regional airplanes where we can go to an airline and we say, we have a conversion kit for your airplanes to fly on hydrogen, and we can supply those airplanes with hydrogen for, their, for the life of that, of that asset. Um, for single aisle, that's a clean sheet airplane. Obviously, you got to have Boeing and or Airbus. You got to have a, an engine maker like a GE uh, building hydrogen engines. right? And, and everybody has to agree to, to standardize on a modular fuel, fuel pod right, uh, as, a, as a way of, of, of supplying it, right? So it is an ecosystem, um, yeah. but, we are, but we're not gambling, we're not hoping, right? A lot of these players, so Airbus is an investor in, in our company, GE is an investor in our company, Toyota, by the way, is also an investor in our company, and, and a number of hydro hydrogen producers and airlines, right? So we're trying to bring this ecosystem together. And you're right yeah. that it's global. You're right that there's a lot of public-private uh, kinds of things that also have to happen with airports and with regulators and, and with others. Um, but we're trying to orchestrate this because we really have one shot as an industry, uh, or mm -hmm. maybe two shots, one with Boeing, one with Airbus, um, in, in the late 2020s uh, for a 2035 kind of-ish new airplane. Because if that airplane ends up being a SAF airplane, we're screwed as an industry. We won't meet Paris Agreement, uh, Paris Agreement targets. So, Paul, I wanted to profit from uh, also follow up on the promise that I uh, said in the beginning of the podcast. Let's talk about the extreme uh, long future uh, as a last question. I want to profit from your experience there, because what we've been talking about now, while enormously important to decarbonization and actually fairly near term, um, does it commit us to or does it point to uh, anything in you know about the long, long-term prospects of starships and other modalities that are traveling into. Let's just consider the solar system first, and then let's go back to your interstellar activity. Uh, you know, is there something from the lessons from what you're you're drawing from your activity now? Is there going to be a modularity argument in, uh, in this, <laughs> <laughs> right, in this inter, uh, yeah, within the solar system and eventually, you know, so asteroid mining and, and, and stuff and then, you know, it, true interstellar uh, activity? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and, and, and I sort of, I do compartmentalize the, the, two, the two stories in my head about my, my work and, and, and I think the industry writ large and commercial aviation. Right, which I think is about bringing the world closer, closer together, um, right. and and about the exploration piece, right? So, so there's not a direct translation. Hydrogen is probably not the fuel, um, maybe like as deuterium, right, or something like that. Hydrogen isotope, maybe, um, for 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 interstellar uh, deep space and interstellar travel. Um, I think both are important. I do hope to to dedicate some portion of my uh, of my career to uh, once again to to the space exploration piece of all of this. Um, I am I am relatively bullish on on, on asteroid mining, um, mm. and and was good friends with, with the folks at Planetary Resources, which I think was one one early attempt uh, to orchestrate that that didn't quite that didn't quite come together. Um, but I think um, I think the question is what's the business case? Um, I think bringing platinoids, rare earth metals, back to Earth. Okay, maybe. All right, I can I can squint and sort of make it make 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 it work. I think more likely it is to supply resources in space, 
right? Uh, but then you have to have a customer base, which isn't quite there. But I am optimistic mm-hmm. with all of the work on launch today, right? That that will unlock innovation in orbit, right? Is 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 cheap cheap ubiquitous access to to orbit will unlock mm-hmm. innovation, which will require fuel, which uh, and other raw materials and, and in space manufacturing. So I do think that in space mining, whether it's on the moon or or on an asteroid, uh, does does make a lot of sense. Um, but would the manufacturing system that would have to be built for space uh, for space manufacturing would it look anywhere near the the kind of infrastructure or or considerations or even the constellation of actors that that we see today in terrestrial engineering? No, and, it and probably industry. and yeah, and in fact, to your to your comment about modularity, right? It probably does look a lot more like modular assembly of uh, of, of space systems and space structures. Question mm-hmm. is, what's the scale of the module at which you assemble? Um, and can those individual modules be manufactured perhaps additively, right, or through, through some other means? But it pro- you probably won't have big sort of factory floors in space, right, with mm-hmm. with uh, subtractive. But, but the fate of uh, but but the fate of hydrogen. I mean, that would depend on whether there is actually H two O in space, uh, right? Uh, that you could access well, quickly, I, or what? Yeah, I, I, again, I don't want to draw too direct of a line, right? Like when we say universal hydrogen, when we call the company universal hydrogen, our ambition for the moment is, yes. a single, is, like, is sort of like the single aisle, maybe the wide body in the 2040s. No, right? I'm so asking you to speculate sector, far right? outside of your company. Yeah. This is so, so I, I'm, not clear yeah. to me, right? So it's not clear to me, right? We're not, we're, we, we do not extend our hydrogen ambitions necessarily to the, to, 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 that, that's not travel. what I was implying. And, I, and I'm talking now in, with your, yeah. Yeah, with your sci-fi mind uh, hat yep. on, you know the yep. Jules Verne in your Jules Verne capacity. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. And so, so I think I think the jury is very much out on what is the right fuel. Um, and also, the question is also for for what is it for deep space travel? Is it for having habitats uh, in uh, in space within our solar system, right? Or or having sort of colony ships that travel for 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 centuries between between star systems. Well, on that on that one, what what is your what is your motivation? What what would be a legitimate and needed motivation? You know, thirty, fifty, hundred year from now, when it comes to to sort of space exploration, is it going to be the justification that NASA has had over the last uh, thirty, forty years, which is you know, learn and uh, bring back, or or is it going to be extractive an extractive vision, or is it going to be a safety or escape pod uh, uh, vision? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I think it's instructive to look back on the motivations for 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 Earth exploration, right? Uh, exploration mm-hmm. on Earth and discovery of new continents, right? And and Vasco da Gama and Columbus and Magellan, and I think it was a combination, right? I think at the core it was curiosity, right, and the joy of of discovering something new, um, but there was always a veneer of economic uh, of uh, of economics on top of it. And of course, that economics has been realized, not always to the people who actually <laughs> made the discovery initially. Um, but uh, but the economics was always the excuse to get patrons and sponsors. Um, but I think the, the motivation of the individuals, uh, including the leaders of, of most of those expeditions, I think were were not fundamentally non-economic in nature. Right. I think it was I think it was curiosity. Um, and I think it'll be the same. Right. I uh, So well, I. And it seems like you have a good portion of that yourself. Uh, absolutely, right. And so, so I think yeah. that's the that's what I <laughs> I hope to bring to the table. Is certainly I'm driven by the by the sheer joy and curiosity of of discovering a new world. Um, but I recognize that that in order to finance such an expedition, you have to construct a business case around it. 
Look, I have uh, profited from your very generous uh, m mind uh, to to explore this hydrogen uh, value chain in aviation, and I am uh, very, very thankful. So uh, thanks a lot, and uh, I hope I can bring you back when when this uh, started to happen. For sure. We're going to have our first, uh, first, first test flight starting Q4 this year. So it'll happen, it'll happen uh, sooner than you think. That's exciting. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation, Tron. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Tron Arne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Tron's projects or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. You can also check out uh, his website at trondundheim.com. The topic of this episode was the hydrogen economy value chain in aviation, and we discussed driving courses, the R&D involved, and how to achieve scalability and climate impact. My takeaway is that the hydrogen economy is coming. It's not even a question of when, it is exactly how we will make it work in the coming decades. That is the interesting part. The innovation is not so much in pure R&D as it is in coordinating the introduction of a new fuel source paradigm, which would mean building hydrogen different planes, of course, but also tweaking airport infrastructure to cater to hydrogen as a fuel source. The key will be to achieve modularity to increase the efficiency with which cargo and fuel flows through the supply chain. These long-term shifts are not easy to see for politicians and asset owners, perhaps, but will entail their buy-in. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, please subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 157 on energy system transformation. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, please do let us know. To find us in so on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.